1: Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Naggett. One day closer to Thanksgiving. I hope you've got your turkeys thawing in the refrigerator because if you don't have them uh, ready to go quite yet, it's going to be hard to thaw them in time for Thursday. Um, we do not offer tips, however, beyond saying get them out of the freezer. We are not a turkey hotline. We have a lot of really important and in very and, and, and in much of what we're going to talk about today, very somber. Uh, news about uh, uh, politics and events of the day. So let's get right to that. Tamar Hallerman is here, as she is always, on Tuesday. She's the senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hello, Tamar. How are you?
2: Hey, Bill.
0: Broadcasting in from my parents' house in Virginia, so my connection's a little iffy sometimes, that's why.
1: Oh, okay. Well, you you sound terrific so far, and I'm glad you're already up up there with your uh, family for the holiday. Uh, Good for you. Rene Alegria is back with us. He's the CEO of Mundo Hispanico uh, Digital. And uh, we're, of course, glad to have you back here, Renee. How are you? Are you getting set for the holiday? Thank you for having me back,
3: Bill. Absolutely. I mean, I think I, uh, like so many others, are ready to cannonball into a bowl of gravy. (laughs)
1: Okay, well, be sure to get a picture of that for us, Renee. (laughs) Andra Gillespie is uh, here. You know, she's a professor of political science at Emory University, and is also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory. Hello, Andra. How are you?
2: I am fine. How are you?
1: I'm good. Are you... is the news such right now that it's hard to get into a holiday mood? Um, do you have, you know, is it is it kind of weigh on you a little bit?
2: Um, no, I have, I've learned to compartmentalize. There, the thing that makes it hard for professors to get into the holiday spirit is that it's the end of the semester, so the holidays always suck because <laughs> I have stuff to grade. So, oh, um, God, and that's right. you know true for Christmas too. It just it just delays anything that I can do.
1: Yeah, I get that. I get that. Thomas Wheatley is back with us. It's been a while since Thomas has been on the show, and uh, he is now with Axios Atlanta, uh, which is uh, pretty new to our market. Of course, many of you who are political junkies have been getting the national Axios newsletter for some time, but now they have an Atlanta version, and uh, Thomas, you are there. How's it going so far for you over at Axios?
4: It's going great. Uh, The response has been incredible. Um, It's a, it's a wonderful time to launch. Uh, There's so much happening. There's almost too much happening, Uh, and next year is just going to uh, guarantee to deliver more. So, trying to stay rested.
1: Well, well, thank you for being with us. Tomorrow, let's. We've got to start with the arbory. Uh, uh, murder trial going on right now. We know at closing arguments, the uh, prosecution and the defense gave their closing arguments throughout the day yesterday. uh, This morning, uh, uh, Linda Donikoski will have a chance as prosecutor to do a rebuttal. She has been given, I think uh, she's been given up to two hours for her rebuttal. Yesterday, she was very efficient in her closing, she spoke for like an hour and a half and, um, and uh, turned it over to the defense. So we don't know how long her rebuttal will take today. After that, the judge will have instructions for the jury. We don't know how long those instructions will be. But the point is, certainly we think by this afternoon, this trial tomorrow will be in the hands of the jury.
0: Yeah, and it'll be interesting to to see how quickly they they come out with a, a verdict for these three men. I mean, given how much all of this has played out in the public eye uh, ever since uh, last year, perhaps this is going to be something very open or shut. But I have a feeling that this might take a little longer, especially given um, some of the the really tough things that have been said over the last couple of days that I'm sure uh, we're going to be talking about uh, in a little bit, especially what we heard from um from one of the lawyers representing um, Laura Hogue, who represents Greg McMichael, some of the comments she she said about um, Ahmad Arbery that I think a lot of people viewed as as pretty racist.
1: Yeah, you know we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. In fact, we we ought to go ahead and start with that, Andra, because we know that it's interesting that in the courtroom, race certainly on the prosecutorial side has not been an issue. Um, the prosecutor has been very careful in avoiding. Uh, Talking about this in terms of race, although yesterday in her closing arguments she did mention she did for the first time say at one point uh, this is about three white men chasing a black man. Um, But let's go to what um, Tamar just talked about. Laura Hogue in her closing arguments um, was making the case that. that Ahmad Arbery was not the maybe the innocent jogger people assumed, although no evidence was presented in the trial to uh, uh, give that impression. And let's just listen to the comment that has really, really sparked controversy. Here we come.
0: Turning Ahmad Arbery into a victim after the choices that he made does not reflect the reality. <clears throat> of what brought Ahmaud Arbery to Satilla Shores in his khaki shorts, with no socks to cover his long, dirty toenails.
1: Um, Andre, I mean, among other things, that's just such a strange visual representation to offer to the jury. Give us your reaction to what you heard.
2: Um. Well, I think first it's offensive, and I'll get back to that part um, in a second. But let me try to guess what she was trying to say. I think she was trying to say that because he was running with no socks on, he was not out to be jogging, right? He was there to trespass and to do no good because if he were a serious jogger, he would have had socks on. Um, I think that that in and of itself is a value judgment that you don't know. Um, when I am on my treadmill in my house, I actually don't wear sneakers, um, right? It's and, and it's my choice to do it that way, um, and so you know I don't. You don't know if the socks were all dirty or if you didn't have socks, but either way, that's none of your business. So I think she, she is trying to say again that he's out of place. He shouldn't have been there. And his character says that he's not doing what, what the prosecutors are saying that he was doing. Um, And so I think she wants to cast doubt in that particular way. I don't know, you know, if any of the jurors jog, um, you know, whether or not that would resonate. Um, You know, it, I'm sure there are some people who run, you know, without wearing socks, there have been, you know, runners, famous runners who ran without shoes because they thought it was more comfortable and natural in that particular way. So I don't think that it landed that the way that she intended to, even before we get to the racial element of it. Um, I didn't know that one had to clean their feet before they, they, they took off running. So I think that that's the other thing. And to tie it to long, dirty toenails, again, is going back to some really old, old, pernicious stereotypes about black hygiene and other kinds of things that were used to justify why blacks should be, you know, enslaved, why blacks were, uh, you know, uh, 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 inferior to whites and just other kinds of things that just like don't matter. Like lots of people like, you know, have dirty toenails or toenails that need to be cut before they go run, but and that should have nothing to do with this particular case. And it reinforces this idea that Ahmad Arbery stood out because people were uncomfortable, with the fact that he was a black man running through this neighborhood and that is the reason why you know he was targeted in this case in the way that other people aren't and that's not Arbery's problem that is the defendant's problem in this particular case and it's our problem as a society that we should be able to allow black people to go take a job through a white neighborhood without having to worry about their lives being in danger because of it
1: Thomas, let me add a couple of more lines from her. I'll I'll, I'll read these uh, fr- from what uh, Laura Hogue said about Ahmad Arbery to expand this vision of him that she created for the jury. She said, quote, a beautiful teenager with a broad smile and a crooked baseball cap can go astray. He can deteriorate and lose his way, and years later he can end up Creeping into a home that is not, not his own and running away instead of facing the consequences. No one is saying that Ahmad Arbery deserved to die for whatever it was he was doing inside 220 Satilla Drive. That's not why he died. He died because for whatever whatever inexplicable, illogical reason, instead of staying where he was, he chose to fight. Creeping into... The house, uh, Thomas, a man gone astray, um, deteriorating. I mean, these none of this. There was no foundation in testimony that supported any of those observations about Arbery. Just to begin the discussion about those comments.
4: Yeah, no, it, I, I've been very perplexed during the trial um, by the the strategy of of, of the defense. Um, uh, th- this wasn't the first kind of strange thing that they that they said. Um, I you know I questioned the relevancy and you know jumping back to it, it, it's all of this kind of it's it's dog whistling it's it's planting a, a, an idea in people's heads. Uh, it's it, 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 it's just very unsettling. Um, and and I would I would love to know the strategy behind this. I would love to know how they came to the decision that. This is the this is the tack we want to take.
3: The, there, uh, yeah, sure. The, there was um, CNN reported that there was a an audible gasp from the courtroom when the the defense attorney mentioned uh, the toenails, and you know that type of visceral imagery is unfortunately. <laughs> The defense making an emotional-based argument that's uh, that's racist and paints a a fear into into jurors, while the prosecution is arguing facts, which unfortunately are less compelling to people right now. And we're kind of living through this time where you know you if you paint it and narrate it in in a way that you're telling a story whether it's fact or not folks are going to follow into this i i mean the comment was disgusting it's 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 a race trope that we see all the time all across the country the fact that it's it's so focused and and made so uh, pernicious in this trial you know shouldn't be shocking to a lot of the individuals that are going through this on a daily basis at, at Mundo, we always, you know, do reporting on, on unfortunate race, tropes that are, that are pointed to our community that, you know, the Mexican that's going to, you know, steal your daughter and take your job. And it's, you know, it's very real to to communities of color all around the country. So, you know, whatever's going to happen in the next couple of days with the jury, it's, you know, as as outrageous as it may be, if they are found not guilty, um, it's not going to be a surprise to people who deal with this on, on, again, a daily basis. And we're we're watching, I think, drama play out that's going to be uh, a, a razor's edge of where the country is going to go uh, in, in the future.
1: Um, Tamar uh, Donikowski, the prosecutor, uh, was very straightforward in her presentation. She laid out her uh, factual uh, arguments in a very, very straightforward and clear way. Let's just listen to just a little to get a sense of how she spoke to the jury yesterday.
3: Well, what are they going to
0: tell you? They're They're going to tell you what you have to say. Oh, he's running toward me. and I could tell he was going to attack me. Is that reasonable?
2: Who brought the shotgun to the party? Who took the shotgun out of the car? Who pointed the shotgun? The guy's
1: running, running away from them for five minutes. So, Tamar, this, of course, uh, speaks to the question of self-defense, an argument which in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, as we know, the jury accepted. Kyle Rittenhouse, the jury decided, had shot and killed two people and wounded a third uh, out of fear for his life. And the New York Times ran a, a long piece on, on how hard it is for prosecutors to, in fact, argue self-defense, against self-defense. Uh, and the piece suggests, says basically, that for laws nationally basically all follow the same uh, uh, line uh, in each state. If people reasonably, reasonably believe they are at risk of death or great bodily harm, they can use deadly force. Most states say that someone who provokes violence or is acting illegally waives the right to self-defense, on the other hand. So that's going to be the the key question here, right? Uh, Whether or not uh, this was uh, when you bring a weapon uh, to a chase of a a man whose activity you really don't know at all, can you argue self-defense?
0: And and this comes at a time in America when we've been kind of systematically loosening our our gun laws over the last, you know, 10, 20 years. And the Supreme Court appears bound to to do it again based off a a New York case that they heard recently. Um, It it makes it really hard to um, kind of argue against these self-defense laws. And and what do you do now when there's also this racial component um, um, in all of this? How much... Um, you know, how much of a defense does the, you know, do prosecutors really have when when you have these McMichaels who who brought the, this gun, um, who, who you could say, are they going to be courting trouble when they bring something like that? So um, I think it, it could be a, a steeper climb for these prosecutors uh, in these closing arguments.
1: Um, All right. So let's uh, just spend another couple minutes on this and then move on, because, as I said, we're going to hear the uh, prosecutor's rebuttal in a short time. Um, Thomas, but let's talk about it in the context of the Rittenhouse verdict. Obviously, there are similarities in the cases. I'm wondering, we we can't get inside the minds of jurors, but uh, certainly over the weekend, uh, it's unlikely they didn't get some inkling about the Rittenhouse outcome. And I wonder to what extent uh, his acquittal uh, could play into thinking about this trial.
4: Oh uh, well, I mean it's it's it, it's it's impossible to know, um, but it, it this is definitely you know uh, sparking a whole bunch of debate about you know when you, when is you know when is self defense when is it self defense and when is it almost provocation. You know, uh, like like Tamar was saying. um, you got to put yourself in the shoes of of Arbery during all this, you know, you're you're just running around and all of a sudden you are cornered um, by people cornered with a shotgun. And there there comes a point where like like where is that line? Where is it? and, And when do you when do you step over it? And how would we really kind of know unless it were, were that, were that, uh, for that videotape? Um, I, so I, don't, I, I really don't know.
1: Andrew,
2: so, you know, the jury hasn't <coughs> even begun to deliberate in, um, you know, uh, the Ahmad Arbery case. So, you know, we have no idea what they're going to do or what they're going to say. Right. If um, you know, if we look at sort of, you know, what people are going to be doing in the written house trial, What I suspect jurors are going to say once they finally come forward and start to explain their case is that when they looked at the video evidence, they were paying a lot of attention about who made the first move in these situations. And so because it didn't look like Rittenhouse was making the first move, he had a credible claim to defense in these particular cases. And I think that that's what got him off. So as much as, you know, I think what people are frustrated by in this case is the idea that he had no business being there in the first place. Um, You know, there was a curfew. He was too young. He shouldn't have had a gun. all of those kinds of things that he managed that, that weren't actually of the essence of the case. Apparently if you're not supposed to have a gun, but then you use it to protect yourself, it's okay. And we're not dealing with some of the larger kind of issues about like what teenagers should and shouldn't be doing um, at any given moment. Um, But I think the facts of this case may look a little bit different. And so I think the question is, and we don't know the answer to that question is whether or not the outcome is going to be the same, Um, because it's not the type of situation where you're going to have a victim necessarily like lunging at, um, you know, munching at the defendants in the case. And then there are these other, you know, issues that are coming up in the case that I, I do think make the fact base a little bit different. And we just have to wait to see whether or not the processing, the juror processing actually looks any different as a result of it.
1: But one of the things we do know, uh, Renee, is that another uh, aspect of this case that has been discussed is uh, Georgia's former citizen. Arrest law, which has now been uh, changed dramatically uh, as a result of this case, um, we know that the citizens' arrest law in Georgia dates back to uh, the years after the Civil War, um, and, and actually to the Civil War itself. It was an uh, it was an opportunity for uh, uh, plantation owners to go after uh, their slaves and capture them uh, uh, legally. And, uh, and so we have this long history of a law that was used specifically for white people to uh, uh, capture black people. And here again, it comes into play in the Arbery case where – the McMichaels and Brian decide that they're within their rights to go after this guy whose, whose behavior they know really nothing about at all. But that is part of what this trial is going to, is looking at.
3: No, that, that's exactly right. And, you know, if, if you just, as difficult as it may be to put aside the, 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 the racist overtones of, of this case, um, I think T- Tamar said it, The proliferation of loosening gun laws combined with, uh, you know, these self-defense cases and vigilantes out there puts us in a very, very scary place as a country. You're going to see this type of defense being played out as folks feel emboldened to break the law because they are they deem themselves scared or afraid. That's subjective. It's, you know, it, it's seeing this play out here, uh, you know, it, it's, it's hard to watch, you No, know? but, but, I, but at, again, at the same time, I think w- where does that leave us as a country with how our laws are structured, who is protecting whom and how the future is going to, to solidify with bringing justice to people that actually do something Wrong.
0: There's also a question of just how many protections you have as a pers- as the person on the other side of that exchange without the gun. Um, so you're going to embolden all these people to to go out with their guns and and police the situation, even though they're not a, a law enforcement officer. Um, does that mean that you have to listen to the person with the gun and make sure that they're the ones who don't feel scared or threatened, so that you don't get shot? Um, It it makes it hard, I think, or or very thorny legal questions about how you protect the other person in that exchange, especially if they're a person of color and the person with the gun is a white person.
1: All right. um, Well, we will watch how this unfolds. We'll see at what point the, uh, uh, the jury gets this case and we'll see how long it takes them to deliberate. They do have three separate defendants. Uh, to uh, work through and a number of different charges. So this could go on longer than uh, I think uh, some people expected to. We'll see and we'll certainly stay on top of it as the case continues to develop. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way uh, and come back. We've got some really interesting new political news to talk about and we'll do that in just a moment. We're back on Political Rewind with uh, Professor Ander Gillespie, with Renee Alegria of Mundo Hispanico, Thomas Wheatley of Axios Atlanta, and senior reporter at the AJC, Tamar Hallerman. Well, Tamar, congressional redistricting in Georgia has sparked some really interesting news. We have talked about, and, and people have known for, for a while now, that uh, the Republican leadership uh, in the legislature, was going to go after the 6th congressional district and try to redraw it so that it's a far more uh, likely Republican district. That's where Lucy McBath has, uh, is in the middle of serving her second term and uh, now it has been drawn as a Republican district. The question was, what's Lucy McBath going to do about that? And now we have the answer tomorrow. What is Lucy McBath doing about that?
0: She's going to go to next door to the 7th district to, to primary um, her colleague of the last uh, year or so, Carolyn Bordeaux, in the 7th. Uh, neither one of them technically live in the district right now. Uh, Congresswoman McBath has mentioned moving, moving from her current place in Marietta East Cobb into the new Gwinnett-based district. Uh, Carolyn Bordeaux was drawn now. She lives just outside the district in Sewanee. Uh, But it's going to set up a really nasty primary fight over there that's really going to divide the Democratic Party. Um, There's also plenty of others in the party who are looking at that district as well, including Donna Mm McLeod. So that'll set up a pretty bloody battle there. And it'll also be interesting to see now that the 6th District, which for so long has been this crown jewel for Republicans in Georgia, Georgia. Of course, that's where Newt Gingrich rose to the speakership. That's where Johnny Isaacson charted his path to the US Senate. Now we're going to see a pretty bloody primary, I'm sure. For, for the um, you know, Republicans in that district, where already we have people like Megan Hansen, Jake Evans, but we could also see others like Rich McCormick, who initially um, you know, was running in the seventh against Carolyn Bordeaux. It's now looking likely that he'll run in the sixth district. So uh, that's what happens when you draw these very safe partisan districts. If you look at the partisan lead, or sorry, the partisan lean of what these redrawn districts are going to be. Now, the the most competitive district is still Democrat plus 10 or, you know, Republican plus 20. So it goes to show we're not going to have, you know, uh, very competitive races for the general election, but the primaries are going to be bloody in all of these districts.
1: Yeah, uh, Thomas, it's worth pointing out that uh, the 7th district, you know, Tamara says that we may see more people than Lucy McBath, who's now— kind of lost the sixth. Moving into the seventh, there may be any number of other Democrats who will challenge him that district. And it's worth pointing out the reason for that. Carolyn Bordeaux ran for that seat twice in a district that was only marginally Democratic. She really went out of, her, she took a risk. You know, she went up there, she said, I think, I have a chance to win this district. She had to deal with Forsyth County, which was much more Republican. And now that the district has been compacted, there were other Democrats who didn't want to have anything to do with that kind of risk. But now that the the district has been compacted, it's entirely, almost entirely contained in Gwinnett County, suddenly it becomes fertile ground for a number of Democrats who may want to jump into the race. Right, Thomas?
4: Yeah, and, uh, you know, even even before this was uh, I mean there, there's always been thinking that the, that you know there was going to be some kind of change like this and even before it was proposed uh, there was talk that uh, Carolyn Bordeaux was going to get a primary challenger I mean if you look at how uh, she's been in, in in the house I mean she's been very much been a moderate um, almost uh, it, it, you know, she pushed back against Pelosi on you know the infrastructure package trifecta with the you know, budget framework. Um, and what, what I'm really asking myself is, how are voters in this new district going to respond to that? Um, is there that real appetite for someone who's, um, I would say, more progressive and and who's who's more uh, willing to put up a fight on these uh, traditional progressive issues and who else joins uh, other than Lucy McBath? I, 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 I don't know, but it's going to be fascinating.
1: Andrew?
2: So, one, I don't understand what Congressman McBath is doing. Um, strategically, this just does not make a whole lot of sense. Like, I understand her looking at the tea leaves and thinking that she's not going to win um, a general election in the sixth district. Um, but the idea of moving to a district that you don't have roots in, right, like you had roots in the sixth district, and now you're going to move over to the east side of Metro Atlanta, um, where you're going to have to develop, the, you know, those relationships, I think, is different. You know, and she might be looking at the fact that Carolyn Bordeaux moved into the district so that she could run and see that as a, as a vulnerability you know, I agree with, with Thomas that Bordeaux was likely gonna get a challenge on her left flank because this district has become more reliably democratic. The thing about McBath though is that McBath really can't make that type of claim in the same way. Bordeaux is more visibly um, more more visibly moderate, but if I I look at sort of pool Rosenthal nominate scores, which are basically about party line voting, and so we could talk about the ways that those look a little bit different, um, McBath is actually more centrist than, um, than, than Bordeaux is. So I just like none of this makes any sense to me. This doesn't strike me as the most strategic move. Um, and you know, and I feel bad for Congresswoman McFath that you know she's had her district change around her and that the challenges are harder. But that just raises other other questions about okay, so who's now going to fill in her place in the sixth district? So this just this I'm, I'm just kind of befuddled by the whole move.
1: Yeah, Renee, I want to use a term here without meaning it in a disparaging way. I, I hope I can. Um, Macbeth showed us a long time ago that she picks her uh, uh, the races to run in a, in a relatively opportunist, uh, opportunistic way. She initially, we recall, before she uh, won the race, for, for, even entered the race, that led her to her seat in Congress, was planning to run uh, for the state legislature. An opportunity opened up in the sixth that she thought gave her a chance to win up there. And so she picked up stakes from the legislative battle and went to the uh, congressional race. And the reason she says she's going to go ahead and challenge Carolyn Bordeaux is this. She's... McBath was quoted as saying, I refuse to let Brian Kemp, the National Republic, Rifle Association and the Republican Party keep me from fighting. They're not going to have the last word. So, you know, there you go. Well, look, what are we doing? We're talking
3: about um, Macbeth. And, she's, and we're, she's going to be the, the focus of the discussion through the primary because she's made this bold move. Well, I agree. It doesn't make a lot of strategic sense. We're, we're talking about it, you know, and it's part of her whole ethos as a very compelling candidate, her story, people connect with her. She connects with, with people. Her, her son was, was killed due to gun violence. You know, I mean, you can go on and on why she is a, a, a representative that again, touches the heart of, people in Georgia. So it is going to be interesting to see how it works out, how, you know, Bordeaux responds to all this. Um, but, you know, I mean, let's face it, we're talking about it and we're talking about her. And it's a it's a good way to launch her campaign. Tomorrow.
0: I'm 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 less surprised. Lucy McBath is a woman hyper focused on on one issue, which is gun control. And over the last you know, couple of years since she's been elected to, to Congress, she's been approached multiple times about running statewide, and she's turned it down because she's so hyper-focused on this issue. And Congress is going to be the place where a lot of these battles are going to be fought, especially should the Supreme Court be gutting a lot of these, um, a lot of these laws um, that the states already have on the books. So it's not surprising to me that she she's going to do what she needs to do to be able to stay in Congress and have a front row seat on this issue, especially if you have a Democratic administration that can be uh, a working partner to that. Um, it is interesting, you know, with with Bordeaux, when she, she first ran in 2018 against Rob Woodall and just how different that district re- was back then. You know, Woodall was winning re-election with 20-plus percent of the, the vote every time. It was so safely Republican. So I can see why she would want to kind of take that perceived moderate tack. Anyway, it's so interesting how much now that that district has changed, it's going to be, become Democrat plus 22 um, after all these changes are approved. So it'll be interesting, you know, just how far left a lot of these candidates could be in a, in a primary challenge. Um, and I'm curious how much it'll ultimately push her um, to the left, especially if party leaders end up coalescing behind McBath or McLeod or any of these other challengers of hers.
1: Um, meanwhile, Thomas, Carolyn Bordeaux could have sort of anticipated this could happen. and even before Lucy Mcbeth made her announcement, uh, Bordeaux revealed that she had won the endorsement of Andy Young uh, who uh, uh, came to uh, to her side on. This fight Uh, so she was prep she was preparing for it she kind of saw it coming her her comment to the uh ajc was uh i fought hard for this district and i'm not giving it up easily essentially
4: yeah and it's you know groups groups have raised concerns about this um in, in the past that uh you know not only do these kind of primaries with with big name candidates going against each other uh do they, you know, do they uh, kind of drain resources? Do they drain energy? Um, but they also contribute contribute to, you know, these not these elections that aren't competitive. You know, they're primary primary elections that uh, where the you know the, the winner is decided then and there. And you just get these increasingly polarized um, states, uh, state legislatures. Uh, and that could very well, I mean, that could very well be the case here. I mean, Carolyn Bordeaux sounds like she is really ready to fight. I mean, like she didn't waste any time. Uh, so it's, it, you know, it, it favors them. But if, but if a Republican jumps in, they're going to be facing somebody that uh, that, that, that probably is going to be
1: pretty tired by the, by the general election. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to see two interesting battles in those congressional districts, the 6th and uh, the 7th in uh, the months ahead, and we'll watch them, of course. Andra, I, I hadn't been paying as much attention. I'd been watching the 6th to see what was going to happen to uh, McBath. I had not been paying as much attention to the new lines that, uh, that the legislature drew for the 14th district, Marjorie Taylor Greene's district up there in North Georgia. It turns out that they brought the, the district down into a portion of Cobb County uh, that—it's uh, Southwest Cobb, I think—that's long been represented by David Scott, the Democrat. And there are going to be Democrats in that district who are really going to be upset to suddenly find they're represented by Marjorie Taylor Greene.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I think that this is, you know, definitely um, surprising. I mean, I think part of it's done because you've got to make sure that your districts are equally, you know, are proportional in terms of uh, population. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's part of the, um, you know, part of the calculus that's going on here. And you have Republicans drawing district lines who aren't necessarily, you know, concerned about trying to keep um, sort of, you know, traditionally Democratic areas together in this instance. I think the big question will be. Whether or not uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene actually ends up moderating in some way, shape, or form um, as a result of having a more diverse district, um, having a, a, you know, a district that where you have this cache of Democratic voters. I'm not holding my breath for that, so let, let's just be you know, very clear <laughs> about you know, where I think this is going. Um, but, again, what this could be setting us up for sort of in the, in the next decade is that as Southwest Cobb, you know, grows and continues to add to the diversity of the district, right, it, it might actually add to sort of the possibility that Marjorie Taylor Greene can no longer safely pull all of the stunts that she's pulling. And given the fact that she has no committee assignments, given the fact that she mainly wants to be on TV, I would – Hazard to look at her constituent services and saying that ultimately that could be her Achilles heel in the same way that it hurt people like, um, uh, Uh, Cynthia McKinney, the same way it's hurt other members of Congress who were, you know, perceived as kind of being a little out to lunch and not necessarily engaged in what's going on in their district. So, um, you know, Green, if she was smart, she would learn, one, how to work with people so that people would let her on committees, but she would also learn to be attentive to people in her district and to understand that that doesn't just include people in Rome, that that includes people who are further south who don't necessarily sort of take a liking to, to, to how she operates and what her style is.
1: Renee, the uh, AJC describes that new 14th district this way. The new boundaries make it slightly less conservative, yet still a safe haven f- for Republicans. Uh, but instead of snatching parts of rural Harrelson County and Pickens counties, which would of course been Republican, the new boundaries curl around exurban Paulding County to pick up portions of Southwest Cobb that include Austell and Powder Springs, which also happen to be some of the most solidly democratic and most diverse portions of the suburban county. It's it's the home to the first black mayor in Cobb County, and the launching pad for the county's first African-American commissioner. So part of the problem becomes here that people who now find themselves in that new 14th, African-Americans, minorities, suddenly find themselves essentially disenfranchised Uh, because the the chances that they're going to be able to elect a congressperson who represents their point of view is virtually nil.
3: It'll be very interesting to see just the population breakdown of that portion of Cobb versus the more rural areas that Green uh, has her base. I, I, I do think that anger drives people to vote, and I think that there are going to be a lot of angry Uh, engaged Democrats that are not going to accept Green as being their representative to Congress, Um, I think she should be very nervous about her contentious future in her district, whether it is still reliably Republican. Still, she's going to have people protesting. She's going to have to, to actually open up and dialogue with people which which uh, Andra said you know very very eloquently she doesn't do that very well you know so um, so we'll see how that that works but you know I think I think the the, the overall uh, point of how these gerrymandered maps become public and how they just destabilize um, all, all the time local communities into just shifting again how they're supposed to work and and looking at a, a representative government structure, that is in peril. I, I, there, was a, there was a report um, yesterday or the day before that for the first time, the United States is backsliding in their democracy, in our democracy. And I think, you know, this is one of those other points that show just how dangerous
1: we're approaching a future with our democracy intact. Um, all right. Well, it's going to be interesting to watch Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think, Tamar, you don't have any hope that she's going to moderate at all, uh, right?
0: Absolutely not. Absolutely not. She her, her platform and her influence comes with being, um, you know, saying outrageous things and being out there on social media and some of these far right news outlets. So I don't see her moderating at all. Um, and I really don't necessarily think that a Democratic candidate can seriously challenge her, given the makeup of this district. What I do think this could open up, though, is maybe a Republican primary challenge and a Republican who's a little more middle of the road. Maybe this opens the door for um, I can't remember his first name. Cowan. He was the the surgeon who was in the primary runoff against Marjorie Taylor Greene. Someone like that, um, who maybe you see a lot of these, uh, you know, Democrats of color in in Cobb County and Paulding County, trying to coalesce a little bit behind somebody who's a little more establishment, um, who who at least won't be saying you know racist and really flagrant things all the time.
1: All right, uh, we'll watch it. Thomas, you want to get in the last word before our break? <laughs>
4: Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I'm, I'm just wondering. I'm trying to wrap my head around, yeah, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, who, who moderates, and, and my, my brain is just exploding. I can't, I can't imagine that, that reality. Um, and Renee touched on a great point. This is also one of those reasons why um, advocates say that it's important that these maps um, get kind of – get a little oxygen, get put out there so people can see them, because this thing came out, and it was a total shock, and now you've got, uh, you know, county commissioners who are thinking, like, how do we work with this congressperson? Um, you've got voters who are like, this person it really doesn't represent me. So.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent point that there are there are local government officials who are affected by this as well. I'm glad you got that in before the break. Let's get our final break. Of the show out of the way uh, when we come back. Yeah, you know we're we're on, right on top of the Atlanta mayoral runoff election, and the AJC has a poll with interesting data that we can talk about after these messages. Here we go again with the uh, final segment of political rewind. Uh, Tamar Hellerman, the AJC, working with uh, University of Georgia School of Public and International Affairs, has released a new. Poll of the mayor's race, 802 likely uh, voters. Uh, if, if they were in the field November 11th to 19th, just to get the terms uh, straight. Uh, the poll shows uh, just on the top line that this is still a very close race. Um, Andre Dickens has moved a little bit in front of Felicia Moore, 43 to 37 percent. It's outside the margin of error, but it's still uh, a very fragile sort of lead, to say the least, Tamar.
0: Yeah, a couple data points that really stick out to me. First of all, that about a fifth of the electorate, a pretty significant portion, are still undecided in the final days of these races. So um, I think that should be encouraging for both candidates, even though um, even though Dickens is is leading more in this poll that gives her more than enough space to catch up. Another thing that was interesting to me was that among, you know, the poll respondents who said they voted for more in the, you know, on November 2nd. Um, there was a, a larger amount who voted for Moore who said they were open to or they were planning to switch to, to Dickens or open to doing it anyway, much more so than the the Dickens people who are open to switching to Moore. And that's very interesting to me because obviously Moore ended up getting something like 40 percent uh, of the November 2nd vote. You know, she was the leader by quite a bit, uh, Dickens and um, um, Kasim Reed were trailing, I think, with the low 20s, maybe 22, 23 percent. And so if you look at that, you'd think more would have this in the bag. But it goes to show that there are a lot of people who have been open to switching to Dickens after all of this. Maybe people who voted for more initially, thinking she was the one who could win, who could beat Kasim Reed, who I think we all thought would end up in, uh, in this runoff. So a lot of people open to switching to Dickens.
1: It's, it's no surprise, Thomas, that crime, uh, according to the people who responded to the poll, remains the major issue in the race by far. 47% uh, said it's the top issue. Uh, Only 21% said affordable housing, which was second, was the top issue. And even though it was only 21%, there are enough people who are concerned about affordable housing that candidates have had to establish uh, positions on this that people are watching pretty closely.
4: Yeah, well, it's it's um, it's it's one of the biggest issues that Atlanta has been facing, and and I think really will face for, honestly, the next generation. I mean, because the, the the more affordable housing you build, the more affordable housing the subsidies expire. So it's really just kind of bailing, kind of bailing out water of a from a canoe with a hole in it. Um, uh, you know, and Dickens has been probably the most vocal person on City Council for the longest period. On this issue, and because Felicia Moore has been in a council president position where she's not really in the position to introduce legislation, it's it's, it's largely leading meetings and and assigning committees. She hasn't had as many chances and opportunities to get out and 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 talk about that. Um, so she's really having to play catch up. One other interesting thing that I that I saw in that poll was uh, people aged 18 to 29 showed a preference for Moore, which really surprised me because Moore is really speaking on more constituent services. Government is broken. I'm the one who can fix it. Andre Dickens is really talking about big-picture ideas and, like, the vision of Atlanta. I want to save the soul of Atlanta. Um, that's really how they're differentiating it or distinguishing themselves um, right now.
1: Rene? Oh,
4: geez,
3: polls, right? I, You know, <laughs> they drive us nuts because there's so much interesting data in, in, in reading them, you know, and then at the day of it's like, what just happened? Um, so look, Dickens has gotten more, uh, former mayor city council endorsements, young Shirley Franklin. I think like six other council members have, have swung behind Dickens. He's got momentum, I I think. And, you know, and, and timing up to that day, is about momentum in politics. And, I, you know, gay and reed supporters are going and kind of, you know, getting behind uh, Dickens. And, and Tamar pointed out that very interesting stat, right, where folks in the Dickens camp are not switching over to Moore, but folks in the Moore camp are switching over to Dickens, which just goes to show that solid base of folks who are very loyal to what his vision is for Atlanta. Um, I think we're at that crossroads in, in the city where we need someone that does have a, an altered vision of what we're going to be. And that's hopeful and the future. And Dickens is tapping into that where I don't think more is as much.
1: All right, Andra, I wanted you to go last on uh, observations about this because this is really where you shine. You understand this stuff, I think, better than any of us do. <laughs>
2: So, how to say this in a couple of minutes. Um, so, first, um, this race is still statistically tied. So, given the fact that the margin of error is three and a half points, like uh, Dickens would have to have a lead of more than seven for him to truly statistically be ahead. And he's only up by six. So, I think that this race is still anybody's, and this is really going to come down to turnout. So, who remembers to vote on Tuesday after Thanksgiving, I think is going to be a big deal. And who's banked enough votes now in this early voting period, I think is going to be really, really crucial. This looks like it's breaking down to sort of a classic de-racialized case. So you've got two black candidates, one of whom is clearly more favored by white voters than others. So Felicia Moore has that vote. might erode a little bit because of the statements that she made after the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, right? And that's a classic problem when you are the transcendent candidate is that if you say something that ticks off part of your base, they may defect. Um, we'll have to wait to see whether or not that actually matters a whole lot in, in this particular context. But what I am seeing from the poll is that... Uh, Uh, Again, as Renee said, Reed and gay voters have uh, defected to to Dickens, um, and it looks like um, Dickens is actually banking strong support in the African-American community. So where all three of them split that black vote on November 2nd, it looks like Dickens is actually picking up more of that vote, which is why he is competitive at this particular point. But again, um, you know. Given that this is likely going to be a low salience election, whichever one of these candidates has the best turnout operation is in the stronger position to win.
1: So is it any reason, Tamar and Thomas, why reporters, journalists, ask Andra Gillespie for quotes for stories? She turns out such interesting information in soundbite form. Very, thank you very much for that, Andra. That, that was terrific. And thank you for being here. I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving, Andra. Renee, I'll agree the same uh, to you. May your Thanksgiving be restful and uh, happy. Tamar Thomas Wheatley, the same to the two of you. Uh, Have a great, great day on Thursday. Um, We're out of time for today, but we're back again tomorrow for another Political Rewind, of course. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Please stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.